I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and this is part two of our super special about Fredegund, and I'm going to do like sort of like a previously on Fredigand moment, but truly, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard part one yet, like, you know, you do you. I respect all of your choices, but you're going to, it's going to make a lot more sense if you listen to part one first, because we're talking about a time and a place about which prior to doing research, I knew nothing. So actually, no. So if you're like jumping into this and you actually already know all about sixth century Frankish dynasty disputes maybe you'll get it but anyway part one is out there for you this is part two i'm gonna be honest if this if i get to talking and it's more than an hour and i'm not done i'm gonna cut it off and we're gonna do a part three because there's a lot to get into and i think it's helpful for all of us to take a week off in between to just like dissect what we've learned so where we left off last time is so the Frankish kingdom was in four parts and then it was in three parts it's still in three parts but uh one of the kings is dead well I guess yeah so basically one of the kings is dead so we've got three kingdoms going on right now we have Burgundy which is being ruled over by Guntram who is one of the original four brothers from when the kings were originally like assigned to them his deal is he doesn't have an heir like children of his own. He 
uh, has sort of taken very extreme religious vows. And so clearly he's not going to have any more kids because of chastity reasons, abstinence reasons. So he named his nephew Childeric as his heir. And Child, oh no, Childebert. Childebert is the son of Brunhilda, and his dad was Sigebert. So Childebert is at this point, I think, like 11 years old. So he's like the child king of his own kingdom, which is Austrasia, which is, I mean, just side note, it sounds like one of the names of countries from like a Hallmark Christmas movie about a fake kingdom where there's like a prince who falls in love with a commoner or something like Austrasia. It's so close to being Australia, to being Austria, to being Asia, yet not. So Austrasia is being ruled over by 11 year old. Childebert, but really it's being ruled over by his mom, Brunhilda. And then the third kingdom is Neustria, also sometimes called Swanson. I'm not sure why. And that's being ruled over by Chilperic and his wife, Fredegund. And although they were married, I get the sense it's sort of a similar thing to like a child king with his mom ruling because Chilperic is utterly devoted to Fredegund and she's the one who's like getting shit done. So... Because they had like, I think, two or three sons in a row who all died of dysentery. And because they're very strict about the whole um, patrilineal structure of it all. Although they have a daughter named Rigunth, who we're going to learn more about this week. Um, She obviously can't inherit because the rules are bullshit. And so they're just like, without a son, they're like, well, who's going to be the heir? And it's all like this dynastic situation. So Chilperic ended up having to name Childebert his heir as well. So presumably, for a time, um, if Guntram and Chilperic both died, then Childebert slash his mom Brunhilda would be the king of all the Frankish territories, and there would only be one king. And well, let's see if that happens. So all this happened, but less than a year after Childebert was declared the heir to Chilperic, Fredegund became pregnant again. She is now in her 30s, and she's been having children for, like, I don't even know, 20 years. Um, And the boys all keep dying of dysentery. So this baby was a boy named Theoderic, and that's where we left last time. And I'm sorry for having to break this news to you, because the first part of this news story is that baby Theoderic also dies of dysentery during another rainy season. So just, like, the rain makes sweeps up all the poo water and just baby boys die of dysentery. This is the third time in a row. Fredegund. I mean, still postpartum, right? Um, with a total lack of emotional support, presumably. Um, she was having a time of it. Like this was her third like child who had died very young of the same disease. Like she must have felt like she was under a curse. In fact, she did. So she looked around to find someone to blame. So this is sort of like, if you've watched um, Peaky Blinders, I don't know what the overlap is between vulgar history listeners and watchers of Peaky Blinders, but I just watched the whole series a bit ago. And there's a part where somebody dies and a character, it's basically his fault, but he just like needs to find a reason that it's not his fault so he can move on with life. And so he talks to an old um, Romany woman who was just like, mm, yes, there was the jewel that you gave your wife that was cursed. She died because of the curse. And he was like, great. It was the curse, not my fault. Moving on. So Fred is also looking, I think, to find a reason, someone to punish, basically. She wants someone to punish 
for this because she's really mad. She's obviously devastated. So she's looking around for someone to blame. And she heard word, or maybe she personally overheard this. She has a spy network, right? Like whether she personally heard or somebody else did, that a courtier was talking about how he knew a cure for dysentery. And she was like, wait a minute. If there's a person here who knows a cure for dysentery, like A, why didn't he give it to my son? And B, this is a leap. So just stay with me and Fred and remember the emotional extreme that she's in. She was like, wait, if he knows a cure for dysentery, maybe he also knows a potion that causes dysentery. Therefore, maybe he caused my son to die. So she had this guy arrested. He was tortured. Um, and even under torture, he didn't admit to poisoning the baby prince, but he did admit to purchasing and using potions, but not for um, malicious reasons, just to kind of like to make friends and influence people. So Fredegund arrested the woman he named who had provided him with these potions, which were probably just like placebos. Oh, the women. Sorry, it's not just one woman. So there are various women from whom he bought these potions. They're probably healers or midwives, um, probably giving him some herbs. Anyway, under torture, they agreed. They said what they needed to say to make the torture stop, which we all know doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, so they agreed. They said, yes, we caused the baby's death. We're witches. And then Fredigan had them executed, some by fire, some by being torn apart on a wheel, and some by drowning. And then in her grief, Fredigand set up. Her grief is just like really outward pointing. So she then set up a giant pyre, like a giant pile of stuff she lit on fire of all of baby Theoderic's possessions so I don't know like his crib I don't know his like little wooden toys or whatever so it seemed like she was just sort of like exercising the memory of him but here's people didn't know why she was doing this except they're just kind of like Fredigan's got a Fredigan like she's a woman with big emotions let's just let her do it but I'll let you in on a secret that the people watching her this time didn't know which was secretly she was pregnant again but terrified, terrified and paranoid that this baby would also fall victim to what seemed to her like a curse. So I'm guessing she got rid of all of Theoderic's baby stuff just in case something among it was cursed so that nothing cursed could touch her new baby. So she was secret pregnant. This is like celebrities during COVID quarantine who are just like, oh, hey, guess what? I like experienced a full pregnancy and here's my baby. It's my baby's a year old now, you know, she's doing like a Scarlett Johansson type pregnancy reveal here. Just like not telling anybody I respect it. So meanwhile, while she's going through all this and she's pregnant again, like they do have a daughter named Rigunth, who was a cool young teen and just dealing with being, well, with her younger brothers perpetually dying and with her just kind of having nothing to do because to everybody, she was just sort of like a human bartering chip to see like what alliance could they marry her off into. And they chose to marry her off into the Visigoths, which are the people from whom Brunhilde came from. And side note, Brunhilde's daughter Ingrud had already married into them as well. So it's just kind of like making a nice little alliance. Rigunth was loaded down with a massive amount of treasure, like a weirdly large amount of treasure to bring with her as a show of how powerful and successful her parents were. And this is kind of setting the scene. But then everybody was taken by surprise when Fredegan's husband, Chilperic, was assassinated. So all we know about the assassin who escaped, 
Apparently his name was Falco, which is a great name. And apparently as he stabbed Chilperic to death, he said out loud that this was revenge for how Chilperic had killed Sigebert. Um, remember, and the person who killed Sigebert was actually, were actually these two young boys who Fred, like, forced to do it with the poison knives. But anyway, so apparently this was... So it seemed like he, the assassin either was allied with um, Austrasia, which is where Sigebert used to be the king, or they wanted people to think it was Austrasia, like everyone's playing four-dimensional chess. Um, Falco, the assassin, also used the same sort of poison steak knives as when Sigebert was killed. Decades later, a story was written down that Fredegund had been having an affair and Chilperic had found out about it and was going to have her and her lover executed. So perhaps Fredegund is the one who arranged for Chilperic's assassination. And I would not put it past her. But so if it was her, um, she may have gotten them to make it sound like they were from Austrasia so she could get rid of Chilperic while also framing Brunhilde. But that's one possibility. But the fact that he was like, this is for Austrasia means that it's just as likely that Brunhilde had sent Falco. God knows she had reasons to want to kill Chilperic after he'd been responsible for the murder of her sister and her husband and of her kind of second husband, Merovech. And uh, if we're putting the evidence together, so Brunhilde's ambassador had been in court like around Chilperic a bit beforehand. So he was around and could have hired an assassin on her behalf while he was there. And then also Brunhilde and her son were kind of weirdly well positioned in the aftermath to like they were right there en route. So that seems also possible. Um, we don't know who hired Falco because he escaped. You know what? This is like, I feel like the one assassin in this entire saga who actually didn't get his arms and legs ripped off afterwards or whatever. But here's the thing. I I doubt that it was Fredegund who did this. Like she knew, we'll see from her actions later on, like being without a husband was kind of detrimental to her. And also remember, she was secretly pregnant. Nobody knew she was pregnant. So if Brunhilde had been the one who planned this assassination, she may have done it assuming that her son, Childebert, would then inherit the kingdom as heir because remember he had been named heir. But she didn't know that there was going to be another actual heir. So... I would suggest, this was not in any of the resources, but I'm just like a bitch who likes a murder mystery. I think the killer might have been Gundevald. Do you remember? He's the other younger half-brother, and he has the support of the Byzantine Empire, and he wants to take over. Anyway, this is, I'm so sorry, a cold case. We will never know who did it, but the end result is the same no matter who it was, which is Chilperic is dead. Fredegund is a widow. Meanwhile, Rigunth... And her entourage, remember they said it with like way more treasure than maybe they should have. Uh, they had been robbed en route numerous times. I think a bunch of the guards who were with her sort of were just gave up and ran away. So this was not a very uh, victorious little entourage parade going towards Spain and the Visigoths to um, marry her. Uh, so while they were still en route on this kind of like doomed trip... They found out about the murder of her father, and so they stopped going to Visigoths because they weren't sure what to do. 
And also they had no money and her father was dead. So she just sort of waited in a convent for a ride back home, basically. A messenger went back to Fredegund to let her know, like, hey, here's what's up. Ragunth is hiding in a convent and also all of her treasure you gave her was stolen and all of her guards abandoned her. Fredegund, uh, this is before there was the, the saying, don't kill the messenger. Well, maybe it was because she didn't kill the messenger, but she did humiliate and berate him and blamed him for the message. And then she rounded up all the guys who were meant to have protected Rigunth and had them all beaten, plundered, and maimed for failing to protect the princess and all of her treasure. And I feel like, yeah, those guys did not do a very good job. And then, so she needed a man and she needed a plan because this was a situation in which women had, she had no power of her own. Remember the way that the society worked was like when you're, a woman married to the king, then you have the power because you're married to him. But as soon as he dies, they're going to ship you off to a convent or even before he dies, if he divorces you, like she had no power of her own. So she had to figure something out. So looking at her options, what she did is she wrote to her brother-in-law, Guntram, who's this like cranky old man who's also celibate. She knew he didn't want to get married again for abstinence reasons. And she also knew that he didn't like strong, independent women. Like he was allied with Brunhilde, but he did not like her. And I think he'd done a thing where like he sent off one of his wives and she came back to try to take over. And then he like shipped her to a convent. Anyway, Guntram, big old sexist, did not like women speaking their mind. Knowing this, Fredegund, who is so smart, she wrote him a letter being like, oh no, I'm just like a poor woman who can't defend herself. Could you please come take over my country? My husband is dead and I have this surprise baby. Guntram didn't know about the baby because nobody knew about the baby because that was her whole plan. But he was like, oh my God, like I don't care about Fredegund, but the baby is a boy and that's important to me. So he rushed over to provide his forces to protect Fredegund and the new baby king. And then just to sort of like extra make him like her, she let him choose the name for the baby and the baby was named Clothar, which is the name of Guntram's father. And luckily, Guntram got there just before um, King Cherubert, the 11-year-old son of Brunhilde. So they also charged over there because they were like, ooh, Chilperic's dead, we're going to take over as well. So um, Cherubert showed up and he was like, hand over the murderess, like Fredegund, the person who killed my aunt, Gilswintha, and my father, Sigebert, and my uncle, Chilperic, and my two cousins, which were Chilperic's previous other sons. So... Cherubert has like reasons to want to take Fredegund to deal with her, but Guntram was Fredegund's protector now, and he was like, mm, but she has a baby who is the king, and so I have to protect her now because she had a boy son, and that makes her matter to me. And so Fredegund was safe for now, but living with Guntram sucked because he was like this awful paternalistic older guy who wouldn't allow her to have any power, and like, I mean, he was not. He was not vibing with her. As a show of power, Guntram forced Fredegund to dine with him every night, even if she didn't want to, until one night she excused herself because I bet those dinners were like so annoying and he probably like made her not talk or something. But she was like, Ugh, she excused herself saying she had to go because she was pregnant, which is like, we're going to look at this because why would her being pregnant mean she can't join him for dinner? But... More importantly, how, what? 
so there was like her husband was dead but there were two months between the birth of Clothar and Chilperic's death so she could have conceivably gotten pregnant again um but that's like a Britney Spears level like back-to-back pregnancy and that was also for their time as well as for ours really it's outside the norm for people to like get instantly pregnant right again especially if you're breastfeeding etc so but there culturally women usually waited at least eight months after giving birth to become pregnant again i think that's based on a bible thing maybe but also i think the bible thing might be based on just like best practices of like making women have better chances of not dying so she was probably lying um but also if she said she's pregnant, that meant Guntram would, ha- would be less likely to turn against her because her new alleged baby would also be an heir. So it was maybe a way to protect herself. Um, to be clear, though, like no baby ever came after Clothar and nobody ever wrote about her being pregnant again. So she was probably just trying to get out of an annoying dinner situation. Or, I mean, maybe she had a miscarriage or maybe... I don't know. I It just seems to me like she was just being like, mm, I can't deal with this dinner anymore. And they're like, well, where are you going? She's like, I'm pregnant. Peace out. But also it sort of protected her as well, because if she was pregnant, that meant that uh, Guntram wouldn't be able to send her to a convent, which is what he liked to do with other widowed old queens, because pregnant women can't go to convents, I guess, is the rule. And then also, although Guntram was this like super monk-like guy, who knows what he was really like? She might have been worried that he might try to um, have sex with her, but if she was pregnant, he wouldn't do that because culturally that also just wasn't a thing and Guntram was very rule-following. So she just kind of, this whole thing just bide her some time to figure her next move. But I feel like we're going to get into a series of iconic Fredigand moments, and this is but one of them. So she, and I think we know enough about her, that she was not into living this like quiet life of retirement in the countryside. Uh, the chronicler Gregory of Tours wrote, she was very depressed because much of her power had come to an end, and yet she considered herself a better woman than Brunhilde. And she's just someone who was always striving for more and always wanted more, and she she liked to have a scheme and a project and a plan, and so she wasn't just going to like hang out and do nothing. Also, it was important to her that everybody knew that she was the best, so she decided to do her favorite hobby of trying to assassinate Brunhilde again. So again, because this has worked before with Sigebert, she sent a household staff member, unpaid servant, uh, to secretly get a job at Brunhilde's palace to sort of like ingratiate himself in there. And then once he was working there, the plan was for him to kill Brunhilde. But I guess he was acting suspiciously because Brunhilde's staff noticed this guy was kind of uh, up to no good so they grabbed him they tortured him and he confessed what he was up to like he literally said like "Ooh, yeah Fredegan sent me here to assassinate Brunhilde to show how little she cared like Brunhilde didn't punish him well other than torturing but she didn't like cut off his hands or whatever she didn't kill him she just shipped him back alive to Fredegan just like a just like a FedEx package just like cash on delivery you know Fredegan was so mad I mean, she's mad at Brunhilde, but I guess she's also mad at this guy who, like, didn't do the killing. So she had the guy's hands and feet cut off, because that's just what she does. So then, she's just sort of, like, on a little mini vengeance uh, checklist. Fredegan went after a guy named Eberolf, 
who had been the royal treasurer uh, during the Chilperic era. And she was mad at him because he'd refused to help her directly after Chilperic's assassination. Uh, Guntram agreed with this. Like the whole trying to kill Brunhilde, Guntram maybe didn't know about it, for sure wouldn't have been behind it. But Guntram agreed with her, like, let's go to Eberolf for his own reasons. So Eberolf was stripped of his titles, his lands, and his fortunes. Eberolf went running off to claim sanctuary, which is the thing where, like, if you're in a church, you can't be arrested. People did that a lot in this era. They were, like, really believed in the... That was a rule if you were... It's like when you're playing in the playground as your kids, and you're like, if I stand in this one corner, like, no one can touch me. It's the magic corner. So... Eberolf went to claim sanctuary in a church somewhere. Guntram was like, oh no. I remember Guntram is like super like rule following slash very like biblical literalism. So he's like, well, how can we trick him to leave the church so we can arrest him? And Fredegund was like, okay, uh, or what if we just send someone into the church to kill him? And she did. So she sent her own man, not Guntram's man. She sent her own man into the church where a bloodbath ensued. Uh, the end result was that the guy Fredegund had sent, probably another one of these like servants, who she's like, I'm going to give you a potion to make you brave. And the potion is like wine. And then he ends up dead, but it was worth it to do it for her. So Fredegund's man ended up getting run through with a spear, but he succeeded because Eberolf's brains scattered across the church, is the description I read. As this happened, men on both sides looted the church of all of its expensive items. Guntram likely suspected Fredegund had been behind this because it was a classic Fredegund situation. Like she did not respect the rules of sanctuary and she always did the most, but he was too busy with other stuff to call her out or punish her. So she got away with it because what was he busy with? Well, the youngest half-brother, Gundevald, remember, um, his hair had all grown back, was launching another invasion funded by the Byzantine Empire. And he was also apparently considering, Gundevald was, considering a marriage to Brunhilde. And that made Guntram really freak out because that would freeze Guntram out of the territory owned by Brunhilde and son. So he was like, okay, I need to like really make sure that Brunhilde and her son Childebert are like super allied with me. So he had a big like public meeting i don't know what you would call it it was sort of like a big it, i'd say it's like a photo call but there's not cameras but in front of everybody had a big public meeting with childebert brunhilde's son to remind everybody that childebert was guntram's heir and he was like childebert you are a man now because childebert was 15 and here's the thing because we see this over and over again where there's these like powerful women and the only way they can rule is like being the regent for their sons and the sons are always useless and suck and Childebert lives up to that. He just is useless. So there was this big meeting and it was sort of a place where he could have, you know, said or done anything, but seemingly all he heard his uncle say was, you are a man now. So he went off um, and got a courtesan pregnant. Because he's like, well, it sounds like I need to go father some children. I'm 15. Here we go. Brunhilde was not into this because she's like, that's not what we're doing, child Abert. We're not just like having children unmarried with courtesans. So she got him married to a very uh, easily persuadable woman who was never going to get in her way. And her this woman's name was Phyluba. 
but also Brunhilde knew like she'd seen like her sister was dead because Fredegund had like raised herself from being not a courtesan but like a servant to being the queen she didn't want another like Fredegund style ascent of a lower class woman so that's why she chose Fyluba so Gundevald still running around so he was like well I just really need to marry he was widowed at this point he had children too he just really wanted to marry somebody to sort of like weasel his way in so he could be the king of somewhere so he tried to see if he could marry Fredegund's daughter Rigunz who is still single after the whole um, caravan robbery situation um, Fredegund herself I don't know if he, he considered marrying her Anyway, but none of this came to anything because Guntram's forces came together, successfully killed Gundavald, so that whole threat is done. This this part two episode, it's part one was like, here's like 75 people. And at the end of it, like five of them were still alive. So every time someone dies in the story, I'm just like, oh, okay, less people get this gets less confusing. But Guntram was mad at Fredegund for entertaining possibly marrying Rigunth to Gundavald. So to get back at her, Guntram made public accusations that Fredegund's son, baby King Clothar, was illegitimate. If he was believed, Fredegund would be seen as an adulteress and probably a murderess. Clothar would no longer be the baby king and Fredegund would no longer have any power at all, which uh, she was not going to let happen. So the way that like the legal system worked in this time is that there were two ways that she could answer his accusation. So either by trial, like a court case, you know, with a judge and probably a jury of men and everybody has to testify or by ordeal, which I guess trial by combat type situation. But there was also a third way less commonly used. I remember Fredegan was a very well-read, so she knew all the, the loopholes, all the legal loopholes. And the third way was, if she had 12 trust, trustworthy noblemen, noblemen vouch for her in public. So the thing she could do is she could have 12 trustworthy noblemen vouch for her in public. So she set about arranging this to happen for her. And she had, remember, army of spies, like so influential, she called in every favor she had from anybody using her supporters to find more supporters. And then the day that she was supposed to show up with, like that she had to answer to the accusations where she, all that was needed for was 12 noblemen to speak for her. And she marched in not with 12 men, but with three bishops and 300 noblemen, all ready to say how she was the most trustworthy person. She's totally not a, an adulteress. Um, they were all like all, 303 of us can all guarantee Clothar is totally not illegitimate. And in the face of this, Guntram had to admit defeat. He obviously wasn't happy about it, but just tally that up for like Fredegund icon status. Meanwhile, she can't stop trying to kill Brunhilde. So she was found out. Guntram found out that she was yet again trying to kill Brunhilde because Guntram intercepted a letter in which her plans to assassinate were discussed. I want to make it clear this was not Fredegund's letter. It was not from her because she was too smart to let her letters be intercepted. Uh, someone else wrote to her. Someone else wrote about it. So Guntram intercepted this letter and he gave a heads up to Brunhilde and Childebert. And because of this heads up, they found two clerics 
armed with swords with special grooves in them to hold poison, like special swords with built-in poison pockets because Fredegund was like leveling up her, her methods of using poison knives. These two men were tortured, mutilated, and killed. And throughout all of this, Fredegund was still stuck in his house in Rouen. And the thing about Rouen is that her, the, the bishop of Rouen at the time was her old enemy and everyone's favorite name, Praetaxtatus. So how did he get back here? So the thing is that Praetaxtatus had been, he was a bishop and then he stopped being a bishop. He was like de-bishoped by Chilperic, I think, because of how he had been found to be secretly funding Gundevald, but then he, after Chilperic died, he was like, ooh, maybe I can go back in. He came back and he was like, I'm going to be a bishop. Can I be a bishop again? And Guntram was like, okay, even though Fredegund was like, he is my mortal enemy. Guntram's like, I'm a man and I know better. Sorry, Praetaxtatus is back in the scene. So he was a bishop and he wasn't a bishop. Now he's a bishop again. And he would like make fun of Fredegund being like, you know, maybe I was a bishop and then I was not a bishop, but I'm a bishop again. But you were a servant and you'll never. And like, if you're not going to always be a royal because you used to be a servant. So like, you're going to be a servant again one day, basically. Which is like bold of him to be mocking Fredegund after we've seen literally everything about her. But also, this was like, do you know, in the second and third Back to the Future movies, where there's this thing where when someone calls Marty McFly chicken, he just like loses all sense of logic and reason and he'll do anything foolhardy because he like can't bear to be called chicken. So this is her Achilles heel. Whenever anyone reminded her about her non-royal beginnings and the possibility that she could be cast aside once her son came of age because she herself is not technically royal, that was just like she would go loco. And so... It will not surprise you to know that she said about planning to murder Praetaxtatus. So we've already established that she does not have any respect for the sanctity of churches. So she sent, she went for an assassin to come into the Easter mass. So like, remember there, like this is a Christian situation. So during the Easter mass, so Praetaxtatus was just standing up at the front, like being the bishop, doing the mass. And like, as he's like literally in the church giving the mass, this guy ran up and stabbed him in the armpit, which is an interesting place to stab somebody. This is, I can't emphasize how shocking this would have been to everybody because churches, it's not just like, that's the place you go for sanctuary when you like don't want to be arrested, but it's just kind of like a church is a place like it's sacred to them. Um, not to Fredegund. She's just like, everyone thinks the church is sacred. Great. That's why I'm going to like assassinate the bishop. So she sent in a guy, pretexted to stab in the armpit, but guess what? Did not kill him. Uh, everyone just kind of stood and or sat there watching this happen. Like the other bishops who were there, who were, I'm going to guess, paid off by Fredegund, didn't like rush up to help him. But eventually some parishioners helped him and they like carried him into his bed because I guess hospitals weren't invented yet. So he's just sort of like in the bed, like bleeding out, I guess. And Fredegund came to visit. This is why, like icon status. And she's like, oh my God, Praetaxtatus, you've been stabbed in church. How awful. I hope whoever the assassin is gets caught soon. 
And Praetaxtatus was like, I think we both know who was behind this. And she was like, want me to send my personal doctors to help you? And he's like slowly bleeding out and dying. Just like, um, no, I don't want your personal doctors, a.k.a. probably also assassins. And then he's like, and also you are a murderer, Fredigand. And he listed all the people who he allegedly thinks that she killed, which he was probably right. And then he cursed her for the rest of her days, but she gave no fucks and left. And he died the next day. So like mission accomplished. So the people of Rouen were freaked out that a bishop was, you know, assassinated in the middle of Easter mass, which is like fair enough to be freaked out about that. So the town leaders, I'm not sure how many there are, let's assume like three of them, came to Fred again to be like, uh, we know this was you. And she was like, mm, let's talk about this over dinner. And they were like, uh, probably not because you're probably going to poison our food or whatever. And she's like, okay, but do you want to accept this traditional Frankish drink? And this is a, a detail I'm going to give you that may or may not explain everything about everyone's behavior throughout this entire story because the traditional Frankish drink was absinthe mixed with wine and honey, which is quite a beverage. Um, I know there's other history podcasts where they like invent a mixed drink to like drink based on every story. And if I was that sort of podcast, that's what that's what I would do. Um, absinthe, wine, and honey. If they're just drinking that instead of water, then like, of course, everyone's behaving in this assassination way. They're all just like, drunk slash high slash on a sugar rush constantly anyway so she gave him this drink and he's like well of course i'll accept a drink of absinthe wine and honey from you like that's just a thing we do here we're the franks but obviously it was poisoned and as he drank it he's like oh fuck it's poisoned and he warned the other town leaders to run away but they were caught as they ran away and they were all killed so but you can't just like murder everyone like this so the church itself set out to investigate. Like, if we're keeping track, she'd killed the bishop and then the town leaders. So they wanted to find out the dirt on Fred again. So to persuade the people of Rouen to, to tattle on Fred, like to be snitches, the church banned baptisms, marriages, and burials in town. And so that made people give in because people wanted to have baptisms, marriages, and burials. Basically, the church went on strike. And so everybody point of the fangs you're like yeah fred again was behind everything guntram you're like where is this guy he's busy with war etc but he did send uh a message that he's like uh fred again please don't install a new bishop because i'll do that that's my job but fred again i mean surprise installed a new bishop because obviously uh she also presented a servant who claimed to have been the assassin and she, you know, she's just like, hey, I've like solved this who done it. Here's the assassin. It's this random servant. Um, and she's like, so sorry, Praetaxtatus family, like do whatever you want with this guy. Um, so I guess they decided to torture this guy and under torture this guy said um Fredigan had paid him to do all this and then he was executed. And I guess that kinda like is like, Well, that's all wrapped up because <laughs> her her murderous power play had worked. Um, by 546, she was the undisputed leader of the kingdom of Neustria. She was the regent for her infant son, Clothar. Guntram cut out of the area 
entirely. And I don't entirely follow the trajectory of how that came about, but I guess it just had to do with her. Everyone was so terrified of her. They were like, okay, I guess. Oh, and then also like she chose the new bishop and the bishop was like, I'm going to say Fredegund is fine because he was the bishop who she had chosen. So anyway, all of which to say, by 546, Fredegund is in charge of Neustria as the regent to her infant son. Brunhilde is still kind of the power behind Austrasia um, and Guntram, like all of those alliances they have between each other. Now it's just kind of like three kingdoms who all hate each other, all going on. So uh, here's a little side story for you. It's about Fredegund's daughter, poor Rigonth, who just like... So she survived all of, like, her baby brothers kept dying, and she had no power because the society was not a society in which teenage princesses had any power, which is unfortunate, obviously, in every society. Anyway, Regan sounds like she was really cool. Um, she was a lot more like her mother than either of them would ever admit, and that led to them fighting a lot physically, so... Quick recap. So Rigans had been betrothed to this Visigoth prince in Spain, but then um, her her like entourage was robbed, and the news of her father's assassination reached her. So when we last left her, she was waiting in a convent to get a ride home, effectively because the marriage to the Visigoth prince had fallen apart. Eventually, she was brought to live with Fredegund in Rouen. And these two just, like, hated each other. Or, more accurately, Rigunth hated Fredegund. And Fredegund was like, well, what have I ever done to you? Except for, like, never pay attention to you or love you. So, I mean, Fredegund was so busy birthing and then mourning baby sons that she never paid much attention to Rigunth. Um Also, just to note that in this patrilineal society, so Rigonth couldn't be the heir, so she was inherently less important, except just as someone to marry off. And the whole, the, a major, a major, there's a lot of problems, but a one major problem with a patrilineal society is that if you look at statistically throughout all of time and history, Girls in general are often healthier than boys. Girl babies tend to survive better than boy babies. Like how many stories have we done on this podcast where it's like, oh no, and then the baby who's the heir died. Like girl babies are just more resilient. And that's what's so dumb about building a society about where girls can't do anything. So Rigonth just had this sort of sense of uselessness and pointlessness, which kind of makes sense because everyone was just like, no one cares about you. You don't matter. We're just going to send you off to marry somebody. JK, you're not going to marry that guy. All of the guards abandoned you. And now you're just going to like live in this castle with your mother who hates you. So she was like well-educated based on the charisma of her parents, probably gorgeous, very charismatic. Is this also a thing where it's like, we have the women who are amazing and then their sons like killing themselves over to give their sons power and the sons are useless. I think the daughters are often cool and it's just like ugh, so frustrating. So Rigonth is just this cool young teen um, bored all the time and to like find something to do. She just flirted shamelessly with every man she came into contact with. And I feel like hats off to you, Rigonth, you know, teenage version of a tits out life 
Frederick End was like, please stop flirting with every man. Um, this is going to ruin your marriage prospects. And Rigenth is like, what marriage prospects? I am a teenage unmarried woman. And then she knew the one thing that she could say to most hurt her mother, which is the Marty McFly thing. Fredigan's sensitivity about having been born a commoner and having been a slave. So she would just be like, you know, I'm royal by blood. You're just a servant. Like one day you're just going to be a servant again. And then, you know, that just... Again, I mean, it's bold of anyone to stand up to Fredigan's like this after we've seen how many people she can assassinate. But I guess when it's your daughter, she's just kind of like, screw you, mom. So their arguments were screaming matches, um, sometimes physical altercations with slaps and punches. And then most famously, uh, during one of these fights, Fredigan pretended to be tired of arguing and was like, you know what, Rigunth, like, come with me. So they go into a room with a giant treasure chest full of Rigunth's father's old treasure, Chilperic's treasure. And Fredigan was like, Rigunth, you can take any of your father's old treasures with you and do whatever you want with them. And Rigunth is like, okay, I guess this is like a peace offering or whatever. So she knelt down and leaned over to like look in the treasure chest to see what she's going to take. And you better believe that her mother, Fredigand, slammed the lid of the treasure chest on her daughter's neck. The servants in the room began freaking out um, because this was not an accident. Like this was not just trying to injure her. Like Fredigand was attempting to murder her daughter via the lid of a treasure chest. Rigan's eyes were bulging. She couldn't breathe. Fredigan was just like pushing harder and harder. Uh, eventually, one of Rigan's servants ran to the hall for help. More attendants came out and they pulled Fred away and helped Rigan get some fresh air. And so, like, parenting tips from Fredigan, apparently. And also, that's the last we ever hear about Rigan, so I do not know what happened to her after that. Although, if Fredigan had successfully killed her, I think that would have been recorded. So, I don't even know. I'm going to guess at this point, Fredigan sent Rigan to go off live in a convent because that's just what you did in this era with inconvenient girls and women. So the next part of this in my notes is called Fredigan's Warrior Queen Era. So hold on to your tits. Here we go. So the thing is that Guntram was still stomping around trying to steal land from Fredigan because this whole thing is just like, they're so focused on just each other. It's like, here's these three kingdoms, and all that they're doing is trying to steal land from each other. Like, it's very self-contained. They're not trying to, like, get more land anywhere. They're just like, this is our land. These are the three Frankish kingdoms, and we're just going to keep trying to steal it from each other, is all that's happening. So, the thing is, Fredigan was not just, like, expert at innovating swords with poison pockets in them. Um, you know, unconventional parenting tips. She had some real uh, good military prowess. So I think part of this is just she's just like a smart person who can like figure things that other people don't think about. I think also part of it is from all of her book learning. Like she read about the Romans and maybe from growing up as potentially a Celtic person, she knew some of their stuff too. So she had some really cool military ideas. And you know me, if you listen to this podcast, if you listen to this part two episode, like I'm not generally... I don't care about the details of battles. That's like other people do that. God bless. But the way that Fredigan fought battles is like really interesting. So for instance, um, there's a place, an, an area, a people called the Bretons. 
So right now we know Bretons as um, there's Breton crackers. There's also, you know how the stereotypical like modern day French people wear the like black and white horizontal stripe shirts, like that's called a Breton stripe. Anyway, so there's a Breton king named Warach, and Fredegan teamed up with him to help fight off Guntram's invading forces. She knew that she couldn't send her troops to help Warach because then Guntram, Guntram would know that she was behind this and she didn't want Guntram to know that she had teamed up with the Bretons. So instead, she got her army to disguise themselves to look like the Bretons. What did the Bretons look like? Well, you remember how the Franks had the like distinctive long hair and the like combed nose hair mustaches? So the Bretons also had a distinctive hairstyle that was shorter. So she got all of her men to cut off their hair, which was like a big ask in a society and a culture where long hair was so important. But then she also got her men to dress in the same distinctive style as the Bretons. And history does not record what the Bretons' distinctive clothes were, but I have to imagine horizontal black and white stripes. So Guntram... And they won. Guntram never knew that she was involved because her troops just looked like more Bretons and their side won. So this is what I mean. She's just like, she thinks beyond what other people are thinking of. Um, but then as keeps happening due to, I don't like, are you in France? Have you been to France, modern day France? Like, is there still floods all the time? Because during this era, and we know this for sure because Gregory of Tours was writing these chronicles and he just like wrote down the weather very faithfully and it's just like rain for it feels like 25 years just like rain floods dysentery so due to floods this weirdly long rainy period fredigan's bad luck and a lack of understanding of communicable diseases um her remaining son clothar got dysentery the same thing that had killed his older brothers and just imagine being her and the same goddamn thing happens to yet another son just when you're on a role of like being this warrior queen. So she's fought this in different ways. Remember one time she burned the tax records and forgave all the tax debts. Um, last time she killed the guy, the midwives who with the potions, she burned all of her baby stuff. So she's just like, you know, it's sort of like what, what we're experiencing now with pandemic times like when something is so out of your control, when anything is out of your control, it's like the only way, like it sort of helps with my anxiety, at least to think like, what can I control? And that is why if you see me, um, I've gotten a number of tattoos and piercings since the pandemic began. I also got a haircut. I'm just like, what can I control? Anyway, so Fredigan was like, what can I control? Like in the face of just, it seems like God's wrath. So she gave a massive donation to the church. Um, she interceded to have some enemy soldiers freed, but her son got worse and worse, like to the point that this poor little baby um, funeral planning started because he so obviously was going to die. This is just like devastating, not just like to her as a mother, but also to her as a regent. And like, what does this mean for like the kingdoms? But then this time the fever broke and he survived. And this all seemed to cause sort of like an aha moment for Fredigan because she realized like if he died, all was lost. And even worse, Brunhilde would likely come and take over her territory. So dealing with her emotions in the only way she knew how, and this had worked out well for her before, she turned all of her rage outwards towards her sister-in-law and came out with her most audacious plan yet to assassinate Brunhilde and Childebert. 
And this is where the whole thing is just starting to give me like Roadrunner Wiley Coyote feels because she just keeps trying and Brunhilde just keeps not being assassinated, but Fred again will not stop trying. So as per ever, she used household staff slash servants slash enslaved people as her assassins. Um, and the thing about this, so the fact that she kept getting these sorts of people to like, instead of sending soldiers, she sent like household staff. Why? So the thing is so many Kings in this era in all around Europe killed their rivals all the time constantly but they did it with invading armies and like on the battlefield and wars fred again preferred to work in the shadows maybe because she wasn't 100 percent confident in her soldiers loyalty like that they would do what she wanted but also because of her past she knew how to relate to household staff she knew what was important to them she knew and maybe they trusted her because they saw that she was sort of like a local girl done good and I believe she would offer them money if they succeeded, which was a better option to them than continuing on being a slave. And, you know, we've talked about several of them were caught and then murdered. But like, for instance, that guy Falco, like he was not caught. Like if you succeeded, then like your whole world can change. So it was worth it to them. And she was clearly very persuasive and charismatic in general. Um, she also apparently gave them, I think I said this before, but. I'll explain a bit better. She apparently, when she had convinced them to do this, she would give them what she called claimed was a magic potion to make them more confident, uh, which was probably just wine, but which had a placebo effect and made them more likely to do it. So in this instance, she sent 12 servant assassins, six to kill Childebert and six to kill Brunhilde. And so... The plan, I think, again, just using like the fact that everyone except for her respected the boundaries of churches. Um, the one guy was supposed to kill Childebert in his private chapel. He was praying. But while he was in his private chapel praying, he noticed a man hiding in the shadows. This guy admitted he had been sent by Fred again to kill him, but he said he couldn't go through with it. This guy was just kind of standing there having like a panic attack, basically. And I feel for this guy. He just like could not do it. And then he tattled on the other 11 um, so Childebert had a search around the town and around the palace and they found the other 11. So all 12 were caught of the 12. Some died by suicide, had died by suicide by the time they were found because they just knew they would be tortured or murdered and wanted to avoid that. Um, others died in custody. I'm guessing from torture related injuries. Those who survived had were mutilated like they had their hands feet nose and or ears cut off so they would be objects of ridicule and that would just remind everybody to not try to kill Childebert. um her plans foiled again um fred again was like okay you know i'm gonna just like take a moment before i try killing them again and i'm gonna focus on some other stuff she focused on what was going on in her own kingdom of noistria Namely, assassinating all of her rivals at home, you know, just to like, this is her hobby and she's good at it. And here we go. Because, so who are her rivals at home? So the thing is, because her son Clother was at this point like seven, the boy king, she suspected, probably correctly, that some people had secret plans to try and get rid of him and her, and she would not let that happen. So, and the way that she made that not happen is by just sort of be, being as 
ferocious as possible and reminding people to not fuck with her. So one of her jobs as regent was to oversee sort of like small claims court sort of thing, which is important to note because Brunhilde also did that in her kingdom. And both of this is a big deal for both of them because before them, Frankish women never got to be the judge type person in those situations. They were both like breaking this glass ceiling of like Judge Judy type stuff. So in Fred's kingdom, there was this family feud going on. So it was all within one family. It's not like a Montagues and Capulets, Hatfields and McCoys thing. It's like just one family, but all different branches of the family. And they all kept killing each other. And she kept trying to intercede and being like, bring it to me. Like, I'll be your mediator. I'll find a resolution. But they kept avoiding her, presumably because she's a woman and they didn't respect her, which is a dangerous way to be. So eventually she was like, okay. She invited the three heads of dinner, three heads of this family to dinner. And they had a great meal and even started to get along. And their servants started to fall asleep because the party had been going on for so long. I'm assuming they're all drinking their absinthe wine honey drink. And if you're thinking like, well, Fredigan has like promised as a mediator, you know, food brings people together. No, you are wrong. Because late into the meal, she gave a signal to her servants and the three men with axes came out and beheaded these three guests like fuck around and find out. So this solved the issue of the warring family in that they were dead now. There were other guests at this party, by the way. It wasn't just Fredigand and these three guys. So it was just like Fredigand, these three guys, some others. Uh, the others all just kind of like slowly pieced out, left the room, presumably, at this reminder that Fredigand was not someone to fuck around with. So she, you know, small scale, she like solved this family dispute by killing them all. But larger scale, this just kind of reminded everybody, just like, don't fuck around with Fredigand. Like, do not conspire against her like she will find out and she does not hesitate to bring out men with access and you know what I'm going to leave us there because we're getting close to it being an hour and I think that's a good length of episode and I want you to be able to really think about what we've learned um get excited for part three will be the last part because we're going to get into the end of it all but also um we're going to get into the scoring which i'm <laughs> it's funny that i'm just like i can't wait to see how she scores where it's like and you invent the scores yourself randomly but i can't wait to see how she scores like the highest anyone has ever gotten on the show thus far. Queen Margot got a 37.5 out of 40. And as one of my friends on Instagram said, like, if anyone is going to get a perfect score, like, seems like it should be Fredigand. Like, who has ever done as much as her ever? But we're going to wait and see. So I'm going to leave it at that for part two. Tune in next week for part three. The exciting conclusion. And... So I cannot recommend highly enough The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World by Shelley Puhak, which is a biography of, a dual biography of Fredegund and Brunhilde. So I, that's where I got so much of my information from. Um, she helped me form some of my hot takes about what may or may not have been going on. But also if you read the book, it's got much more about Brunhilde, who was absolutely a star as well. It's just, we're looking at this. I approach this myself from a Team Fred 
point of view. So that's how I'm viewing it. But Brunhilde, how many times has she foiled assassination attempts? Tits out queen herself as well. Super recommend that book. You can find that book or links to pre-order that book and links to all the other books I've used in this podcast at the page on bookshop.org. The links are in the show notes, but it's bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history. Um, I have my little Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer, And that's where if you pledge as little as $1 a month, um, you can get access to some extra content there. And so one thing that I've just changed or added to the Patreon also is anyone. So if you pledge, there's like different tiers. It's like $1 a month, $2 a month, $5 a month. And the $1 and $2 a month people and the $5 a month people, everybody gets access to episodes of Vulgar History a few days early. So that's a special treat for you. People at the $5 a month tier, they get the extra, even when I'm on hiatus, I do at least one extra mini episode per month called So This Asshole, where I talk about various men and the people on the Patreon vote for which men they want to hear me talk about. The one I did last month was Philip the first of Spain and it ended up being like an hour and a half long because there was a lot to say about him. So I say mini episode, but they're also sometimes very long. Anyway, um in the Teespring store, for which there is a link in the show notes or there's a link from my Instagram, I wanted to mention that there is new ish tits out merch like literally shirts and things that say tits out on them and i wanted to mention that there's some discount codes one can use so if you're in the u.s you can use code tits out for free shipping or if you're not in the u.s you can use the code tits out 10 for 10 percent off so you can check that out and what else on instagram i'm at vulgar history pod that seems to be where i'm spending more of my time than on twitter but I still love you out there on Twitter, where I'm at Vulgar History. And I'm really excited. You know, is this a season? Like, I was just going to do a super special about Fred again, but it's turned into three episodes. So I feel like, is this a season of the podcast? I don't know. Back around and find out. So mask on, tits out. Talk to you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.